super quick review of what we talked about yesterday, just to refresh um, our memories. So we were talking about various case management tasks. This is kind of a big part of what we're doing in CTI. We're just doing it in this sort of rapid, phase-based, time-limited kind of way. Um, and so we talked about these various levels of intervention um, that we could use. So just reinforcing a strength-based a strength approach of what's already working. Um, and then providing education to people, information to people, instructions, um, sort of providing guidance that will enable people to do things on their own um, you know, when, when they have the ability to do that but need some assistance or guidance because you all are the experts on the resources in your area. And then doing things together. So this is a lot of what happens, especially in the beginning. It's just a lot of um, you know collaboration and being a team together and working on all the things you need to work on. And then at times during a crisis or when something's really important or a client doesn't have the ability to do something, that you might do something for them. Um, and so the when you're trying to figure out you know how much support to provide. Uh, the, in general, you know, providing the least amount of support necessary is kind of a best rule of thumb to enhance clients' independence, self-efficacy. However, you know, usually what happens is people are being referred to you because they've got some barriers either in their capabilities to do uh, something, and I just saw that's misspelled, uh, capabilities to do some things, or there's motivational factors of things that just are... Um, you know, sucking people's motivation. And so we want to consider uh, the severity of needs and what are clients' capabilities, um, motivational factors, and also systemic factors. And then think about, you know, how strongly you intervene. And if the outcome is really important, then you want to provide more support. So I think we talked to, so that's kind of a review. So these are various factors that can affect people's motivation. Um, and so I imagine that you will, these will sound familiar to you, um, but I'm just gonna go through them. So if people have psychotic disorders, I'm kind of starting at the top and I'll just go across each row. When people have psychotic disorders, um, you know, there's the positive symptoms, which means presence of delusions or hallucinations. And the negative symptoms means things that are missing. Um, and so often what's missing for people with psychotic disorders is um, this uh, difficulty in getting themselves going. So it's difficult to take a shower. It's difficult to um, do things that you need to do to get what you need in life. Um, it can be, there could be a lack of, um, uh, social uh, skills, you know, that it's really hard to figure out how to sort of interact with other people. It's really stressful to figure out how to interact with other people. And so the symptoms of psychosis can really impact people's capability, but also just their motivation to do things, even if they're important. If people are depressed, you know, what we know about depressed is that part of being depressed is that you have lower energy, You've got no interest in doing things. Nothing sounds, you know, uh, meaningful or enjoyable, and you kind of feel hopeless sometimes and just worthless. So when people are seriously depressed, 
that really sucks a lot of motivation um, out of their ability to handle things in their life. Anxiety symptoms, if you're feeling, and we could probably all relate to some of these things, right? You know, if you're really um, anxious, you've got worry thoughts, you're afraid of trying something, you're afraid of starting something new, and we tend to want to avoid things that make us um, fearful or worried. Um, and so avoidance um, can be a huge barrier if there's a lot of tasks you need to do in your life to get connected to resources. Uh, sometimes people are just confused and this isn't their fault because the systems that we are working in are very confusing. So they can be frustrated, they can be angry, or they can just be intimidated by all these uh, social service systems that are genuinely really difficult to navigate. Um, so I think, you know, when we're doing this kind of work, we're trying to um, have expertise um, in resources be kind of a skill set and a knowledge set that that we have that's unique. Um, and so that is, you know, why we can help people with these things, but it's very natural to feel confused and frustrated and just intimidated. Another thing that can interfere with people's motivation to do things is that they've had past negative experiences with agencies, providers, that's certainly true in our area um, where people, you know, said, I'm never going back to that place, or I tried to do that before, or, you know, just had a negative experience. Um, if you're ambivalent about anything, it's harder to get yourself to do it because you're not sure if you even want to do it. Um, and people can feel ambivalent about getting medical treatment, about getting, um, you know, benefits. Um, so there's all kinds of things that people would be just sort of have mixed feelings about and, and not be confident that that's what they even want. And then shame and stigma um, and embarrassment is another thing that can um, impede motivation. So if you're you know embarrassed about being homeless, embarrassed about having mental illness, that you're very aware of stigma and you're already dealing with that on a day-to-day -day basis, it can be harder to just kind of put yourself out there and say, hey, I'm, you know, I have no money and I need food or I have a mental illness and I need help um, or I'm a homeless person and I need, you know, a way to take showers or whatever it is. It can be um, just, people can feel just, um, you know, a sense of shame or stigma. Um, and so that's another factor. Sometimes people are reluctant to accept charity or seek treatment. Um, we run into this sometimes where even though we see people are absolutely entitled and deserving of resources that are available to them, uh, sometimes people have sort of beliefs that, um, that would disincline them to accept certain kinds of support. Um, and so that's a different kind of problem to have. And then people may have cultural beliefs or things that they learned in their family about whether or not they should get help, whether they deserve help, whether help is help. <laughs> um, and so these are um, a lot of factors that can interfere with people's motivation to do tasks that they need to do um, in order to become housed or um, you know, seek a quality of life in whatever way um, they are hoping to, and that when people are having these kind of motivational factors, it might be that that would be a reason that we would 
um, provide more support because it's, you know, because these would be um, interferences. And then there's things that affect people's capabilities of doing things. So there can be practical barriers uh, like transportation, not having enough money, not having a working phone, uh, not being able to read well, not having a calendar, having vision impairments or hearing impairments or mobility impairments. These are things that people don't really have any control over. Um, and so, but if you are lacking any of those things, that is already a barrier to being able to um, do these problem solving kinds of efforts. And then clients can have their own specific barriers to capabilities. So that could be some of those symptoms that we talked about. Like if you have a psychotic disorder, it may be just harder to concentrate and understand um, different things. People can have various level of interpersonal skills. So if people don't have good inner, like control of their own anger, for example, then it can be harder to go into a frustrating uh, system where you have to wait for a long time and, and somebody's like not very nice to you or warm or helpful, um, that if you're gonna just blow your stack, then you're going to potentially make it worse for yourself. Um, sometimes people think they have more skills than they do, or they may be oversimplifying a task. Um, and then sometimes things are really complicated. And so another thing to check for with your clients is that sometimes people may seem willing and, and capable of doing things, but things just don't get done. And so what on our team we notice is that if somebody said, yes, I can do that, I'm gonna do it. I don't want your help or I don't need your help. And then like two months go by and they're still saying that, but it's not working out then what we would be trying to figure out is, okay, what's, what's happening here, you know, um, and uh, figure out if there is a way that we can, um, uh, you know, sort of move the ball forward a little bit. So sometimes it seems that somebody should be able to do something, but it's not happening for some reason. Um, and so then we would be trying to creatively problem solve, like how can we help this person get these um, resources or benefits that they need or services that they need, um, despite you know, the fact that they're um, either, it's, it's not working for some reason. So this is a little bit of um, a difference from some conventional kinds of services that um, you know, say like, you know, our clients should work as hard as we do. And if you stick to that, um, you know, principle, um, there is a place for it, but sometimes we have to flex up on that when we're, um, especially in the beginning. So that's what I say here. So CTS or traditional view might be compliant with treatment or insight into illness or being, you know, treatment readiness. And these aren't really things that are especially helpful in this kind of work. So, you know, and I think about them as being sort of anti-CTI um, and that we really are meeting people more than halfway, um, at least in the beginning and certainly maybe in times of increased stress or crisis. And that doesn't mean we're, you know, carrying them along and, and, and not encouraging independence. So that's why it's such a balance that you're really trying to evaluate that all the time is, is the amount of support that you're providing the appropriate amount of support. 
So here's a uh, Linda, um, the case we talked about yesterday. So she was a person living in a tent with a disability pending claim and really having trouble meeting all her own needs. And um, you know, oh, you probably remember that case. So here's the next part of her story. Um, so for benefits, after years with no income, living outside, she was awarded disability benefits. And of course, she was extremely excited about having an income, and that meant she would have the possibility of getting her own place and being able to buy things after having been deprived for so long. So she wants to be her own payee. Her attorney did not sort of, you know, request from Social Security that she be required to have a payee, um, even though she had no experience that we knew of of managing money. And she had a back pay of about $30,000, which is huge, <laughs> huge. Um, actually, when she first got it, the first thing she did, she's walked upstairs to my office with new boots that cost $250. So that was on day one. By the end of the week, she had a car. Um, so that's where that was. So then she obtained a subsidized apartment. And the apartment was located in one town over, a little more rural. But since it was available, she decided to um, accept it because it wasn't unavailable um, in the town where she was. It was non-smoking as many apartment complexes are now, um, but she said, that's okay, I wanna quit anyway. I know I'm smoking almost two packs a day, but I can smoke outside in the smoking area and I'm gonna stop smoking. She was extremely focused on being independent. And although she had been you know, very, you know, working very closely with our team, as soon as she had her own place and her own money, she was kind of like, yeah, I think I'm going to be fine now without you guys, but sure, you can, you can come visit me. You can still, you can still come uh, work with me. Um, and so she started to be in the contemplation stage about getting treatment. Um, just kind of like, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I know there's a clinic and now that I'm going to be in a place, I think I could um, make appointments and, and keep appointments. Okay, so let's get into small groups. I'll put that slide back on and it'll also be in the um, slide that um, uh, David sent around. And so here's what to talk about on that case. What problems do you think might come up for Linda now that she has this benefits and, and housing? So both those areas. What opportunities do you see for her now that she has benefits and housing? Um, and then what might be some barriers? Um, and then what are some things, some ideas that you have about things to do with her um, to help her be successful um, in this sort of new stage of things? So problems, opportunities, you know, barriers and um, ideas. So it's kind of a brainstorming. I don't want you to feel like you have to follow these exact questions in order, um, but just talk in groups about how you would um, think about next steps with this case. Um, so let's see, um, other, other ideas? I think everybody captured that. Did anybody, did uh, anybody talk about the possibility of um, um, this whole payee question? She has said, yeah, I don't want that. Um, and yet I'm guessing some of you might've thought it would be beneficial. Um, did anybody talk about that? 
Senior group, that's, um, that's a, um, a tricky one because sometimes if people are applying for disability benefits, it's kind of good to think about the whole payee thing ahead of time. Because <laughs> once people get the check, you know, it's hard to go back. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, you know, that I always do with, um, with people who are applying for disability is to say, let's think ahead. Um, and usually I talk about a payee as a person who is like a financial support person and somebody who would help them protect their money and protect their benefits. Cause that sound, cause I feel like that's true. And it also sounds a lot better than saying somebody who's gonna get your check <laughs> every month. And so sometimes it's sort of the, the reframing that you can um, put on things. Um, so, yeah, so I think everybody pointed out a lot of the um, areas of opportunity for independence, education, um, and that there's these real kind of red flag um, areas. All right, I'm gonna share my screen again, go back. We're gonna do a little bit more. So now I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, uh, learning theory. And this isn't usually something that um, I've seen show up in, in case management trainings, but I'm got um, and I'm a little bit of a behaviorist kind of person. And so I what I have learned about um, behavioral learning theory, I think is really relevant to the work that we do. So behavioral principles apply to all of us. They are universal, um, you know, uh, you know, heck, even, you know, if you know anything about from Psychology 101, you know, dogs and pigeons and mice and human beings can have their behavior shaped by these learning theories. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really helpful to be aware of them. So basically what it means, just kind of refresher, you may know this, but positive reinforcement is anything that is, um, you know, added to is reinforce something positive happens that increases a behavior. Negative reinforcement means um, that the behavior is increased by avoiding a negative. So positive reinforcement would be <clears throat> that if, um, you know, a kid, let's say uh, you've got um, a child and it's bedtime and if they get ready for bed, without lots of whining, fussing, or dragging their feet, they will get to have um, a story before they go to sleep and, um, you know, something like that. That's like reinforcing. That's reinforcing. It's like they love the, the story time, and if they get in their bed on time, they're going to get a story. That's positive reinforcement. Um, <clears throat> and so you can add an aversive, but the other thing you can do is take away a positive. So um, if um, um, if I think about the the you know the child going to bed, think about all the different things that can happen. Um, if a child whines and fusses, and then parents give in, then they have uh, learned that whining and fussing will get them what they want. So they're going to keep on doing it more. On the other hand, what's happening to the parent? is they are getting negatively reinforced to let kids stay up because they were like, oh, I'm so tired of hearing this fussing behavior. I'm just gonna let them stay up. 
And so then what happens is their parents' behavior has been shaped by the child, you know? So we have all these, you know, different things that can happen, you know, in, um, if we were, if we were all in person, this is an activity that I do that's kind of hilarious, but you can ask one person to leave the room and then everybody else in the room can just decide on a behavior that they want the person to do, like go turn on a light or, you know, sit in a chair. And then when the person comes back, but without saying any words, we can do things to get people to do the behavior based on eye contact or smiling or, um, you know, or anything like that. And we can shape people's behavior. Okay. Um, that's just a little bit about that. But the reason that it applies to um, the work that we're doing is because the clients that we work with are doing things because they work in some way for them. They are getting some kind of positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement. So something good is happening or there's an absence of something bad. Um, and so we want to ask ourselves, why are certain things working for them when like, we'll say that doesn't make any sense. This thing is causing them so many problems. This, you know, why are, you know, they doing this? It so obviously seems like such a, a harmful choice, but there's something that's going on that is working for them that is reinforcing patterns of behaviors. And if we can figure that out, we're going to understand things a lot um, better and there also gives us opportunity to think about you know how we might um, you know sort of help something different happen that's um, less harmful more effective and when we're doing this we're thinking about short-term versus long-term goals and outcomes so when you're in survival mode usually what is uh, matters the most is short-term outcomes um, and you'll probably know that about a lot of your clients that whatever is going to work for today is probably going to seem more important that's going to work for a goal of six months down the road. Um, and the, the only difficulty with that is often what works in the short term today can be counterproductive to a long-term goals. But it's really hard and you may not understand that or, you know, or know it. You know, and if you don't understand that or know that, you know, it's going to be difficult to to change. And also the reinforcers in the short term can be really powerful. So, for example, um, well, here, let me stay here. So, for example, um, <clears throat> let's think about somebody who um, does uh, you know, in in our county, it is illegal to be drinking in public spaces. So you can't be on Main Street and be drinking alcohol um, out of an open container. Um, and so people know that and lots of people unfortunately get arrested for it. And they know that that could happen, it could have happened to them and they've certainly seen it happen to other people. So why, what would be a reason that people would be um, drinking outside even if they're on probation, even if they're gonna end up you know, in, in legal trouble. So please just either unmute yourself or chat about what might be, um, what about that is working for people. And David, I can't see the, the chat, so maybe you can um, help me out with that part. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so one answer is because um, they get instant relief from drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's a huge one. It's like for a minute, <laughs> you have an escape from whatever stress that you're dealing with. Yeah, and there's a follow-up statement to that, which is exactly, I, I think what you're uh, referring to, Janice, it, it makes their current experience easier to tolerate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's easier, uh, it's, it's easier to be on the street if you're drinking. Um, that's probably true, you know. Um, what about, are there any um, social, potential social rewards um, in this? Yeah, uh, there's a comment of alcohol is an instant bond. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and when you're homeless, you're no different than the rest of us. We need people. <laughs> we need to feel connected to people. And if you're homeless, like one way to sort of connect with people and kind of have a nice time is to drink together. Yeah. 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 They said uh, everyone in bars become instant best friends. And yeah, it's such a true statement <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, I, exactly right. That might be a, a reason where even if you have no money, you would be, you know, buying alcohol, you know, for, for people um, or, or, or stealing it um, from other people. Um, so yeah, so that is, um, you know, one, um, one really, I think, classic example. So, oh, but often, I mean, this happens, you know, to me, and even though I'm, um, you know, and I am a huge believer in people, you know, making their own choices and respecting their choices and the right to self-determination. And yet I also care about, you know, my clients when I see them doing something that I think, you know, oh my gosh, you know, this is um, counterproductive to your long-term goals and what's important to you. I know important to you and it is and it's it's hard you know it's very um hard for me to um you know to want something different you know to come out of that but I always have to remember okay like what you know what's happening here you know like why are they doing this there are reasons or something that they're getting out of this or something they're avoiding um and it may be the difference between a short-term goal and a long-term goal and sometimes like talking with people about that can can be um helpful so let's think about Linda again. All right, let me just minimize here. Okay, so Linda, this is what happened next. She gets settled into her apartment in the same town. She gets lots of supplies, she buys furniture, she decorates, it's lovely. Uh, she gets this reasonable accommodation to keep her cat as an emotional support animal, as you all um, pointed out, you know, and that's um, probably very important for her. And she got CST, which I don't know if you have that um, out there, but it's community support team. So it's basically a community-based enhanced service um, that now that she has um, insurance, she can get and they have it in this town. And so that would be something that since we're thinking about CTIs transitional, that would be a service that could um, to be and you know start up and be gone ongoing and she would have resources in that town and medication management from the local agency and we wrote a guest policy which we're that's another thing we're going to do here and we helped her make plans to structure her days and do things that she needed to do and things that she wanted to do which is 
no easy thing when you've been living outside. So then what happens is she started smoking inside. Um, one of you mentioned that, fairly predictable that that might have happened. Um, she or her cat get, her cat get um, getting out of the apartment, like she, she was, you know, just escaped through the door. And then she got another kitten because she felt like her cat needed um, a friend. And so then her neighbors start complaining about the cats and about the smoking. And she was really lonely and her homeless friends wanted to come visit with her. So you all saw all this coming. <laughs> and so she let them stay because she couldn't stay. No, probably, you know, she, what she would say is, uh, you know, uh, she would know how it was for them. And, um, or she would say, well, they were just gonna visit. And then all of a sudden they were staying here. Um, and they also eating her food. Um, and then she started to no-show her appointments. Um, and because a friend said, hey, you know, this medication that you're having will, you know, be really bad for you, these bad side effects. Don't, don't let them give it to you. And then she wasn't paying her car payments or her car re got repossessed. And then believe it or not, she went through somehow uh, almost all of her back pay. So it's kind of just really sad <laughs> what happened. And then we have a quality of life survey and I'm gonna share all these tools with you. So I did this quality of life survey um, and even though this person could not wait to get housed and was so happy, actually what had happened is a whole bunch of things on that survey got better, but her happiness went down. And, and so that was like really important information. She said she was, she was lonely. So here's the, uh, the question. So what are, you know, and I was just pulling my hair out, you know, the whole thing was just so discouraging. So what are the, what are reinforcing the behaviors that might be causing her to get evicted, which is the thing that she doesn't want? Smoking inside, getting another cat, spending money like it was burning a hole in her pocket and having homeless guests over. So let's get back into the groups and, and just answer this question about like, why, you know, what is she getting out of these things or what's driving these behaviors Maybe another way to think about it. Um, and then we're gonna, you know, do some problem solving after. Um, so I'll put the piece up here for another minute. So you can look it over as we're looking for what is, you know, what's driving these behaviors, what she's getting out of it even if it's mixed, right? Even if it's a mixed bag, even if there's some good things and some bad things. Um, all right, it looks like we've got everybody back. So let's just do uh, what we did before. Feel free to um, unmute yourself and make any comments about what your group talked about or put things in the chat. Loneliness and not being accepted. Yeah, so I'm guessing that is especially uh, relevant to having guests over, even though she knows that's against um, the lease. But huge, like words, you know, none of us, uh, you know, can tolerate being lonely. If you've ever been lonely in your life, uh, then you know it's such a powerfully, um, you know, distressing experience. Yeah, the instant gratification of smoking, right? It's like, when you need to smoke, <laughs> if you're addicted to, to tobacco, um, you know, then you may 
just, you know, have this physical addiction. You just need to smoke and if going outside seems like not a good idea. You're just going to want to do it. But this, okay, here we go. So if we want to do things to change these patterns, you know, to sort of create, help people create new behaviors that are going to work for them in the long run. Um, so we're really trying to think about, because that's what we all do, kind of have to do in our lives. At some point, if we want to have our lives go well in the long run, we have to think about this. This is why we go to all the trouble to, you know, go to school and, you know, get a degree or save money for things that, you know, we want in, in the future. Um, why we do hard things right now because they're going to pay off um, in the long run. So, um, so one thing is just learning new skills. Um, so, you know, Linda probably just doesn't have skills. And if she learns some new skills, it may be that that would um, change a pattern of reinforcement in a way that she would be able to do something new that she would say, like, I know how to do this now. Like, I know how, I know some budgeting tools and it works and I can do them. Or I know now how to, um, you know, practice, you know, practice saying no. You know, this is something I'll do with people a lot. I'm gonna pretend that I'm your friend and I'm gonna call you and say, oh, please, Linda, it's raining out. I miss you so much, I wanna see you. And how do you say no to that? Like, that's a skill to figure out, like, how, you know, how do you do that? So learning new skills is really important. If you try something new and there's a positive outcome, um, then that is, you know, that's something that can be really important in changing patterns. Um, and so there might be some things to do with Linda around that. There might be a new way to uh, talk with her friends and say, I, I'm going to have to say no, but I I, let's meet at McDonald's and I'll buy you a cup of coffee if she has this drive to, to sort of do something generous, you know, to try something new. And then maybe the friend says, you know, you know, all right, you know, <laughs> uh, that sounds good. Or, 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 you know, or, or she learned something about her friends that's helpful to her in figuring out who are her good friends and who are not as good friends doing things over and over and over again. So if you're going to try to say no, you have to, you can't just say no once and know how to do it. You have to sort of say it in a variety of situations to a variety of people and to where you can um, know how to do it and generalize the skill and have a new habit. So that would certainly be true of, of smoking. Um, that if you had some new habits around a different way to handle smoking, that you would get used to it and, and it would be easier, um, much easier to do. Um, connecting actions explicitly to goals. So all, every single time you're getting, you know, talking with somebody about doing something differently, you want to have like a reason why it matters besides just that like people are telling me that this is what I'm supposed to do, you know, or people are, you know, people are want me to be, know healthy and they want me to take meds and they want me to like you know be easy to get along with it's like no it has to matter to them um and so you want to say like you know this thing that we're talking about connects to your goals so that's a little bit of motivational interviewing it's like you're saying it's important to you to have this or do this in your life 
and, um, and this thing that we're talking about is relevant. So let's talk about that. Um, sometimes people can, um, it can be helpful to um, articulate what is the difference between a short-term goal and a short-term outcome and a long-term outcome. So you could say to Linda, you know, uh, you know, of course you, you know, want to have your friends over. Um, and there's something about that that's, you know, was really, you know, great for you yesterday. Um, and that's a short-term, um, you know, short-term upside. Um, and yet, you know, for the long-term upside, you know, then it might be that you need to do something different and let's talk about that. So you're kind of opening up conversations, um, you know, and you're adding a little bit of education, a little bit of motivational interviewing, um, and then talking about it and problem solving and helping people clarify what they want to do. At the end of the day, it's up to them. And you can want people to do things differently, but you can't need it, <laughs> you can't make it happen. Um, and so that's an important thing to keep in mind because you know you don't get to control. Um, you can do things in an environment to be reinforcing and supportive of their efforts. So, you know, if you think about um, a cat, you know, there are things you can do to put a barrier between um, around the door. Or um, this is kind of funny, but the thing that this real life Linda did around smoking is she, in order to save money, she liked to roll her own cigarettes. So she had this Rubbermaid container that was the size of a, like a boot size shoe box. And she had in it her tobacco and her rolling machine and her papers and her lighter and, you know, kind of all this stuff, but she had it in a thing by the door. And so, it was became easier to just go sit outside and she had her coat there. So it kind of helped her get better at not um, smoking side. So that was sort of structuring her environment to be supportive of her efforts to not smoke inside. So there's things, you, sometimes it's a situational factor and not, you know, you can, if you can change something about the situation rather than trying to change the person, uh, that can be helpful. And then of course, breaking things down into small steps. So we all kind of shape our own behavior by, you know, taking one small step. Like if you've ever tried to start working out, you know, the first thing you might do is, you know, um, just say, okay, I'm at least going to put my shoes on and walk down. I'm going to walk down the street and back. And if that's all I do, you know, that's okay. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a small step in shaping behavior. So those are some ideas. So if we think about Linda, it could be things around keeping our cat there. It could be around, um, and there would be probably a whole bunch of stuff to do around money. So some of these would be really complicated problems that we might come back to, we're gonna come back to this case to do some more nitty gritty problem solving, brainstorming that would end up in a phase plan. So I thought, before I continue with the PowerPoint is share some tools um, um, because with sort of this case fresh in mind, um, um, it might be interesting to look at these tools. And these are tools that uh, I got from this um, organization, a website called um, orgcode.com, which is a very odd name for a website. So it's O-R-G-C-O-D-E.com. But it is, um, it's a housing, um, it's just a housing 
website that's all about Housing First. And I think they may even have some connection to the development of the VI SPDAT. So I don't know if that's a tool that you all use in your community to do, you know, uh, vulnerability index. What's it? Uh, index. I can't remember always a vulnerability index. Uh, something tool, a decision assisted making tool or whatever, but it's, it's still, they developed this FedAt and although our community is um, using something different. So the link, and I think it might be in your, in, um, this handout was orgcode.com. So just O-R-G uh, code all together, you know, no caps or spaces.com. And what you can do is they have, they've got trainings, you know, they advertise it as trainings that don't suck or something like that. Um, but if you go to purchases or purchase, you know, tools or something, products, you can, uh, you put things in a basket as though you were going to buy it, but they don't cost anything. And you can just say download now or whatever. So I'm going to show you a few of them, but they have a whole bunch. And um, these are the ones that our team has found most helpful. So I'm going to just share and show you four different ones. Okay, so I, hopefully this is, um, David, does that look readable? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little bit small, but yeah, I, I, I'm I looking at it. a small screen and, yeah. uh, and I'm able to okay. read it though, so. Well, you'll get it. Um, and so I'm just wanting to do it. So this is the quality of life survey that I told you about that I um, sometimes do with people. So it, it is compared to when you're homeless, since you have been housed, has this thing improved or stayed the same or gotten worse. And so it's a really nice way to get a snapshot of how things are going with people compared to when they were homeless. So it's stress level, sleep, physical health, food, uh, the quality of food, friendships, um, mental health, you know, hopes for the future. So happiness and safety. So it's, it kind of gives you a picture of the person's experience that is, you know, how it's different now or the same, you know, whether it's, you know, better or worse now that somebody's housed, because I think it's easy for us to think that we know, you know, what's better or what's not, but it's actually kind of really uh, more important to get their perspective on it. Um, and so anyway, oh, and then they have also interactions with police, uh, you know, the emergency room, drinking, jail, drugs, um, you know, different things like that. So that is an, um, a nice tool that can be used. Let me share, um, let me share another one. Hold on. right. so this one is called a week of meaningful activities. So this is a nice thing to do. I don't do this just for people who have been homeless and are now housed. I sometimes use it with people who are staying in shelters or maybe in Oxford houses or who are homeless or who are, we also work with people who just are, have housing instability. Um, but this can be good for a variety of people, but basically it's very simple, but there's a little instruction about how to do it. Um, and so you can, you know, read that, um, but it helps, um, you know, it's, 
kind of respects relationship and, and it tells you how to use it effectively and gives some helpful hints. And so this is what it looks like. And first they have an example and then you, you know, there's a blank one, but it basically is very simple. It just has uh, seven days of the week, morning, afternoon, and evening. And then it says, do they have appointments or other things I plan to do? So um, it can help people plan ahead for how do you structure your day? Because if you don't have any structure to your days, like things to sort of anchor your time, um, then you just have this sort of open-ended, unplanned, just, you know, you're not really being intentional about how you are, you know, living your life. And if you have a job, you know, then um, it's so much of it is done for you, but a lot of our people, you know, aren't working, um, you know, often, you know, when they're homeless or newly housed. So then you can have, you can put appointments in there and then you can have things like read or go to the park or, um, you know, go apply for a job or go to an AA meeting or, you know, cook or, you know, there's everything in here from, um, you know, going to meetings, to um, watching movies, um, to having lunch. So anything, so it just helps people think about, well, what are the things that I need to do? And what are the things that I would like to do? Um, and I think this is true for all of us. Like if I wait till Saturday night to figure out what I'm going to do Saturday night, I might be, you know, not have a plan or it's too late to plan something. But if I think about Saturday night on Thursday, then I might come up with an idea that I can prepare for and, and sort of um, anticipate. So then the person can write at the bottom, what was the best thing about your day and what could have been better? So it's kind of a way of tracking how things are going. So I think that's a really nice tool. So that's the example. Um, and then there can be also notes and reminders. And there's a place here for a signature, you know, if people want to make it sort of more of a formal tool that you um, go back to each week. I didn't really do it that way, but it's obviously flexible. So that is a tool that I think is, and this is something I did with Linda. I did all these things um, with her. Sometimes I pick and choose. All right, let's see in the next one is going to be okay so this one is called the honest budget and this is a really great budgeting tool to use um the honest monthly budget so i'll show you what's on here there are things that i have to spend money on and the formal ways i get money so disability jobs, whatever. And then you've got things like rent and food and utilities. And then there's all these other ways that people can get money or spend money. And the thing that makes this budget a little better is that it's, it's honest so that it includes things that we're just going to assume that people might be spending money or getting money all these different ways that you know, that other people would have judgments about. So it almost like embeds non-judgment into the form. So you say, here's all the informal ways people can get money. So it can be odd jobs. They have treasure hunting on here. Sex work is on here. Drug running's on here. Day labor, theft, selling medications, gambling, panhandling. And so it's kind of designed to be just, this is just information. You're not, you know, making judgments. 
you are just trying to understand their financial situation. Now, there might be things on here that when you learn them are, you know, clues about, let me make this bigger, that are, um, you know, sort of, you know, if it turns out somebody is, you know, dealing drugs or doing sex works and you're concerned about, you know, potential harm, um, then, you know, that might be something that you um, make a note to talk about at a different time. But this is really just trying to be honest about money and all the different ways that people um, spend money, including drugs, sex, gambling, you know, people they owe money to. Um, so anyway, and then you kind of figure out like, what's the difference between what I spend and what I make? And then you can do some problem solving. Um, so that's another tool. And I think I have one more. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good. two more. And Janice, I, I want to share a question with you, and it's regarding the honest budget. Um, but there's a question about uh, what are honorariums and how would that be relevant to? Oh, yeah, honorarium. That's a good question. I'm not really, um, I'm not sure if I know what that is now, come to think of it. I feel like I did know at some point, but let me try to find out the answer. Um, to, to that um, and find out, it's a good question. I know over at UNC, and this may be true of other places that, you know, people will um, sell plasma or participate in research studies, you know, so there's, that is happens to be something in our area, you know, that people can do, you know, because we're connected with a two huge hospital systems. Um, so are there any other questions? And I'll have to get the answer to that one. Um, nope, that's the only one. Okay. So this next one is the guest policy. Um, and since we were just talking about Linda, I thought this would be, um, and this is just a great tool to use because it is a personal guest policy and it helps people think about how do they want to um, handle visitors in their own home so that they're not just sort of responding in the moment when somebody says, ah, uh, you know, I'm coming over or they show up and you're not sure what to do. So you have visiting hours about when guests are allowed or not allowed. So people can say like, yeah, after 10, you know, nine o'clock at night, I'm, you know, in my pajamas. I don't want to talk to anybody after that. And then you say that you would make exceptions for certain people like they are always allowed to visit, never allowed to visit or something else. So then people can think about, wait a minute, who, who is not welcome in my home? Um, or there's some restriction about that. So that can be a really nice way to think about um, different people in, the client, in your client's lives. And then they get to say what their rules are. Um, so the rule could be anything from you know, you, you can't eat the food in my fridge, bring your own food. It could be, you can't smoke in my house. It could be that, you know, um, you can't be too loud or no shoes. So people have their own preferences about what's okay or not okay with them. And they get to decide. So this is kind of an empowering tool. And then to think about what am I gonna do if someone breaks my rules? because that might happen and you have to have a way to troubleshoot what you're gonna do if that happens. And then this is sort of a motivational part, you know, and connected to goals. Um, this is why having this guest policy is important to me. So that could be, I don't wanna get kicked out of here. 
I want to decide, I want to be in charge of who comes and who doesn't come here. So there's different reasons, but you're, this is kind of connecting to the why and the motivation. Um, so that is the guest policy. And I'm just going to show one more. I have to find it. Okay. This is one that I haven't used as much, but um, a lot of um, our peer support specialists sometimes use this one um, more than I do because it's similar to a wrap plan. So it's um, <clears throat> a CTI recovery plan. Um, and so this has on here. So this is a longer document. This is something you might do as a bigger project with somebody who is really interested in doing recovery plans. I don't really think doing a recovery plan makes sense if people aren't interested in doing them. Um, and sometimes people are willing to give it a try or look it over and sometimes, and sometimes not. But it's got everything from wellness tools, daily maintenance and triggers, when things are breaking down, crisis plans. So you can see that that's a lot of just wrap kinds of things. So it goes through, you know, what do I have in my life? And what do I, how do you look, how do you feel, act and look when you're well? So I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, but it's um, a nice tool and I'll make sure that you have all those things um, sent to you as PDFs and you can get um, those and more tools up that website that I was telling you about. All right, David, are there any other questions before I return to the PowerPoint? Uh, no, just to comment. Uh, they, uh, these are awesome forms. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, they're really cool. It's really nice. You know, I'm a big fan of a form that is actually useful and easy. Um, I really, you know, when I get somebody who has, you know, something that's, if it's, if I find it tedious and overwhelming, I know for sure my clients are going to. So I like things that look like really simple and user-friendly um, and that are relevant. So, yeah. All right. I'm going to go back to the PowerPoint now. Okay, so this is, you know, I'm not doing a huge amount about trauma-informed care. I mean, it's great to get um, training in this if, if you can, if that's available to you. Um, but I thought we should at least talk about it a little bit um, because it's such a common experience um, for our clients. So there's a huge amount of prevalence of trauma um, in our population, homeless individuals are more likely to have experienced traumatic events, childhood abuse or neglect or other abuse in their lives. So domestic violence, um, other kinds of violence um, and certainly you know, childhood abuse seems to be more common in individuals who are homeless than in those who are not. And then of course, being homeless makes you more vulnerable to ongoing trauma or abuse or assault. So if you're homeless, you are more vulnerable. You know, these um, terrible things can happen to people when they're um, living outside in unsheltered environments or in shelters um, or couch surfing. And so when you are, you know, homeless, you're just, you're less safe. Um, and so, you know, and it's also important to remember that Many people who experience trauma do not develop 
post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and may not have PTSD, um, but there are many who do. So having experienced trauma doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna have PTSD, but it may still have some kind of impact on you. It, you know, it usually does. Um, and, you know, but often people will go on to develop full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder with all those symptoms that go along with that. And if people want me to talk about that, I can, but, um, you know, that I don't have it in my slideshow. Um, but some of the impacts of trauma and PTSD without going into all the various symptoms. So this is not so much about symptoms. But people who have, so the other thing about, I think about homeless individuals um, and people with serious mental health conditions and substance abuse problems is that often they just haven't experienced one trauma, but they've experienced multiple traumas or chronic or ongoing traumatic conditions. Um, and so if people have chronic PTSD or severe PTSD, it is very likely that they are going to have other mental health disorders. Very likely they're going to be um, using substances and it's very likely they will also have medical problems. There's something about being traumatized that makes you more vulnerable to having other kinds of problems. Traumatized people tend to be more emotionally reactive. You know, if you're in fight, flight or freeze mode and you're um, and you're just um, you're just gonna have more of a uh, like a hair trigger reaction to things that are scary or upsetting um, and or distressing in some ways. So that just seems to be true. And also when people are more emotional, um, we and this is all of us, when we're more emotional, we're less able to think. You know, we're not going to think as clearly. We're not going to solve problems as clearly. Um, so that's just kind of a, you know, a, a brain thing, you know. Um, and then because of this, um, then it isn't uncommon for people to have burned bridges and lost supports in their lives. And they may burn out family members or they may have sabotage relationships or they may, because of their reactivity, they may have gotten trespassed from places um, or evicted from shelters and that sort of thing. Um, trauma can impact abilities people to function well, obviously in the ways they, they need to and want to. And, and for us, you know, when we're working with these people, they, they sometimes are more interpersonally challenging to work with because of all that reactivity um, and all the multiple complex problems. And if we think about um, stages of treatment for PTSD, so people think about like stage one or stage two of treatment and, you know, and, and you may not be a treatment provider sort of officially, but if you wanna think about a stage of treatment, the first stage is that people need to just focus on basic safety and basic stability. Um, and so you can't really sort of do all that processing of trauma and thinking about what's happened in your, in your past and you know all the therapies related to that. If you are not um, safe with yourself, you know, or other people, and if you are so unstable that you're just not functioning well. So you're, these are the people that you're probably working with. And, um, and so it can be tricky to figure out like, you know, what, what can you do? Um, so here's just some ideas. So one thing you can try to do is to provide 
whatever protective measures that you can think of to prevent future trauma. So that's a little bit like harm reduction in a sense, because if somebody is in danger of being traumatized further, then you can think about like, I can't, you know, I don't have a home for this person or I can't change everything about how, who this person has in their life and, and that sort of thing. But you might be able to put in some things that would create more safety. So there may be systemic things there may be connecting them to um, agencies that are trauma-informed or um, therapies or just help them find a safer place to be um, and safer people to be around. Um, referring to appropriate services um, and treatment, if that's possible. Um, and then, of course, you know, the more that we're trained in being trauma-informed, then we will be, you know, even if we're not providing sort of, quote, treatment, what we may be, we can act in ways that are therapeutic for people, um, just in the way we approach them. And then the other thing, you know, when you're working with people who are so um, traumatized and experience such difficult circumstances, that we can have vicarious or secondary traumatic reactions. And so if you've ever had this, you know, happen where something was just you know, so upsetting that your client was experiencing, or you couldn't get their stories out of your head, or stop thinking about, you know, sort of the um, very dangerous uh, circumstances of their lives, and you may have experienced this. So it's important to notice that and take care of yourself to get support for yourself. Um, another thing um, that we can do for everybody, but um, for really challenging clients is to figure out ways to increase your own compassion because the, you know, the opposite of compassion can be fatigue and avoidance and frustration and, and anger. And we're, you know, not immune from just having negative emotional reactions to people and feeling like, oh, I dread talking to them or, you know, I'm so tired of them, you know, you know, yelling at me or they're stressing me out um, or they're just driving me crazy. So we want to find ways to increase our own compassion for people, even when it's hard, um, and also be taking care of ourselves. So some other really basic things is um, be predictable and consistent um, so that, you know, people know what to expect from you. And that doesn't mean, you know, you could never be different or be flexible or, or you know, have a a change of plan or have to cancel something, but just generally speaking, be a person that's predictable in their lives um, and try not to be emotionally reactive yourself. And I consider myself um, a pretty, you know, emotionally, um, you know, kind of relaxed person um, over the years. I've gotten more so, but I had a client this past year that she just really pushed my buttons and she would call me and just literally scream at me and, and couldn't, um, you know, stop talking. You know, I couldn't interrupt her. And so it was very um, difficult for me. And I would just find myself just wanting to tell her to just, you know, be quiet and listen to me or, you know, and I would want to hang up on her. And I had to really figure out how to not react emotionally to her just because she was reacting emotionally to me. So sometimes, so I had to figure out like, how do I get off the phone with her? If I feel like I'm losing my cool, how do I stay calm even if she isn't? 
Um, and so if you're a human being, you know, that's going to happen to you. And, and that's, it's okay. You just have to figure out like what, how to, how to get out of that. Cause you don't, you know, want to be emotionally reactive with your client, or if you find yourself being emotionally reactive, you need to figure out a way to get out of that. Um, clarity of roles can be, um, you know, um, helpful as well. I talked about this in the beginning, but you want to be really clear about what you, what people can expect from you and what they can't expect from you. So they are, you know, because if they don't know, it might seem like they're testing your boundaries or, you know, um, just provoking you. But, you know, so it's really um, helpful to just state very clearly, you know, what, um, what they can expect in view and what they can't just clearly and calmly. Um, and then um, just in terms of safety and stability, uh, it can be helpful for people to engage in some basic self-care routines, having a schedule, you know, teaching some very, you know, basic coping skills and helping them figure out how to communicate effectively if they're the kind of people that um, are likely to not communicate effectively and then not get what they need. So, so that's a lot we could do. We could do a whole other day easily on all these things, um, but those are just some ideas. And then um, one more page here, I thought that was the end. Um, make sure you get support from your team and other people because it can be really um, challenging and you don't want to feel like you're alone and can't talk to somebody else and just feel like you can be honest, whether it's with a supervisor or a colleague, um, you know, take a break if you need to, um, get help if you need to say, I need, I can't, I need somebody to be in this meeting with me with this client. I'm just, you know, it's just not going well. Um, and then, um, Try not to let your team be split. So if one, so the kind of thing I'm thinking about is if people are really emotionally reactive and super interpersonally sensitive, which sometimes happen to people um, with um, chronic trauma, is that they'll start having, you know, like the good guys and the bad guys on the team or, you know, complaining to one person on the team about the other person on the team. And then because we're caring or trying to empathize, we can think, wow, you know, boy, that person's, you know, doctor is really being, you know, mean and, um, you know, they must be a terrible doctor. And, you know, I'm so glad that they have me to talk to because I'm the only person who really understands them. So you want to try to not have that kind of attitude because there may be a kernel of truth in it, but usually um, people are just doing the best job that they can. That doesn't mean everybody is... Um, you know, perfect or golden, and there are doctors who are less kind than other doctors, but, you know, you just want to assume that probably everybody is doing the best job that they can, and you can't do everybody's job, and to, um, sometimes we have to help our clients interact with other people in their lives as effectively as possible, so I can't rescue my client from a doctor that she, you know, thinks is being, you know, um, abrupt or snippy or whatever. But what I can say is, you know, it sounds like that doctor is not kind of a, a warm, fuzzy person. Um, and yet, you know, they may be able to, you know, treat this condition that you're concerned about. And um, you can, you know, request another doctor, or maybe there's a way that you can tell her 
you know, what's going on with you and maybe she'll still have um, something that she can offer, you know, this is her area of expertise or something like that. So why don't we, so this is a little bit of backtracking, um, but I thought it might be um, good to just do a little practicing with one of those tools. Um, and so David, is, does everybody have the guest policy? Um, um, that might be a good one to do. To it. I'm going to go ahead and put that link in the chat box one more time. Okay. To the uh, folder right. on Google Drive, and then they'll be able to access the guest. Okay. Um, well, let's, so let's get back in the groups and we still got the case of Linda. We all kind of know, you know, what's going on with her. So we're going to sort of imagine that, um, you know, we're at the beginning of housing for her. We kind of know what problems are going to happen. So, um, and, uh, but we're going to sort of pretend that we're at the beginning of, she's just moved into this place. She's, you know, got it all furnished. She's got her cat. Um, and, um, and we know that she has all these friends and she has a hard time saying no. And she's new in town, so she doesn't know anybody. So all these kind of circumstances and uh, help her write up. Um, a guest policy for her apartment. And um, if there is, you can just do it as a group discussion, or if you want to sort of make it a role play and have somebody be Linda, you know, then you can do it that way, whatever feels the most comfortable. But at least have um, a couple people think about it from Linda's perspective, because you want to have a couple of Lindas in your group to think about, you know, do you think she would like that? Or, you know, you know what I mean? So kind of have like it from the, uh, a worker's perspective and from Linda's perspective and see if we can come up with a guest policy that seems um, to be useful. And that'll probably about take 10 minutes or so, I'm guessing. At least I tell you what, figure out somebody in your group who can take the notes or write it down. Um, even if you can't print it or fill it out, just kind of write down what would be in the blanks. So we've got Linda's perspective, worker's perspective, and somebody to take notes um, so that we can come back and talk about it. All right, I, I hope I didn't, I always feel bad that maybe I'm just like cutting people off mid-sentence. So I hope, I hope it didn't work out like that um, for you all, but... Um, so let's get some observations about that, either from Linda's perspective or um, from, you know, the uh, CTI workers' perspective um, or questions. So feel free to put some things in the chat or um, unmute yourself and just share any observations that you would like to. Um, so this is kind of moving uh, away from again, uh, you know, the work with the individual and thinking about how we're collaborating with other people, because this is a huge part of what CTI is about, because if you remember one of the goals of CTI is to link people up with as many things that they need or are appropriate for them or that they want, so that you're not thinking about yourself as doing everything forever, you know, that this isn't, you know, sort of like, okay, I'm this person's case manager, 
you know, now and into the foreseeable future, it's, it's me. So you want to start thinking about like, who could replace some of the things that you're doing that this person needs, you know, so do they need a therapist um, and hook them up with that? Because you don't want to be the only person that this, you know, individual can talk with about, you know, their personal problems and emotional difficulties or, or whatever, or they might need um, a therapist or another peer support specialist from another agency that's kind of like standalone peer support, or they might need, you know, clubhouse or drop-in center or, um, you know, other kinds of services. So this is kind of the goal of CTI. The CTI model is to, um, you know, as somebody said yesterday, you know, put yourself out of a job in some way by having um, clients have their own support systems that can work for them and um, develop some of their own capabilities and skills. So you're kind of looking at both of those things. Um, so you're doing a lot of collaboration with um, formal support systems. So lots of provider agencies uh, or, you know, organizations, sort of government kinds of things, you know, so it could be anything from DMVs to social services, to social security administration, to uh, food pantries, um, you know, shelters, whatever, you know, I think every community has their own uh, local things. So there's like, you know, pharmacies, um, there's uh, healthcare providers, there's um, homelessness services, there's animal services, you know, just like, um, even in a small town like ours, there's quite a number of places that um, that we are continually, you know, kind of accessing and learning about. And it's an always evolving process because things, things are always changing all the time. Um, certainly with COVID, we've had so many different kinds of emergency assistance kinds of places and then all the stuff around vaccines and testing. And, um, you know, it's been really complicated. Um, so, and then you're working to some degree, depending on your client, um, informal support. So that could be family members or friends, uh, could be sort of the homeless community um, at large, uh, neighbors, uh, churches. Um, I, you know, our experiences with homeless people, they tend to have uh, thinner networks of family and friends, but often there's somebody, you know, like, you know, their mom that lives in the next state or, you know, um, something like that, but they're still close to them. Um, or they've got one good friend that always helps them in a pinch or something like that. So you want to be able to know who those people are and you might even be able to work with them in some way. That really sort of depends on the situation. Um, let me see, okay. Um, this slide might be a little bit out of order, but that's okay. So I'm sure everybody knows about confidentiality laws and um, you know privacy um, protection of personal health information. And the reason that I include it here is um, not because you all don't know what this is, um, but because I think it's a different kind of challenge when you're doing this kind of work. Um, because when you're working with um, multiple providers and agencies, you have to, it takes a lot more thought to figure out like, 
who to share with and how much to share and what you have the right to share. Um, and so you have to be more careful about HIPAA than I think if you're just a doctor talking to another doctor or something like that. You know, it's just a much more complex set of things to figure out. So, um, so, so of course you want to have um, written consent and, you know, whatever your forms are that they are, you know, include the information about the individual and who they're giving consent to. And sometimes there are special boxes to check over, over information that has even more protections, uh, for example, HIV status or substance use. Sometimes some consent forms have special boxes for, you know, and you also, you know, allow permission about this topic. Um, and so that people can have choices um, about that. And you wanna make sure they stay up to date, you know, so that if they expire in a year and you're still working with that person, you wanna um, keep them updated um, to make sure you're in compliance. So when, so if you have a consent, you still need to think about um, what to share and how to share. So if you're sharing information with another person, what you wanna make sure is that they need that information for the, for the role that they have in the person's life. Um, and so if I'm talking to somebody's, um, uh, you know, the person at uh, Department of Social Services who is their section eight worker or, you know, food stamps, you know, SNAP benefits, um, then I don't need to tell them about, you know, if they've got, CPS and you know child protective service involvement, or that they are you know staying at a shelter, or that they've been in the hospital. I only need to tell them that if it's relevant, you know, to the thing that I'm that this person to this person's role in this person's life. Um, it's needed to improve care in some way. It's needed to refer for services, and then you have to respect the client's wishes about what to share. Um, and what not to share. So even if I have consent, usually what I'll say to people is something like, um, I'll make sure, you know, do they um, want me to just have verbal consent, meaning I would just talk to them over the phone, um, or, you know, if I'm wanting to exchange documents to make sure they understand that and know why and what. Um, and then I'll usually say, you know, are there things that you definitely want me to talk about with this person? And are there things that you definitely don't want me to talk about that person, um, talk about with that person? Um, because sometimes that's very relevant. So, you know, I had a client who um, was, had a, um, a dad who was a Southern Baptist minister. Um, and, and this person um, was identified as gay and, and said, if my dad knows about that, it will be a huge, huge problem to me. And he's really supportive of me in getting treatment, but if he knows about that, it's gonna be terrible. And so, you know, so that was something I definitely wanted to um, respect um, to, you know, sort of protect his privacy in the relationships where he wanted to protect it. Um, and so, um, and then when somebody's at risk of, if there's like a suicide risk or a risk of harm to another person, then the HIPAA laws are pretty 
uh, different then, um, because then you can breach, you know, you can break confidentiality to protect somebody's safety. And so that's also a good thing to share at the very beginning, say, you know, everything's confidential unless you get permission, except, you know, if, if um, you're being dangerous to yourself or dangerous to another person, then um, that might be a situation where I can't promise confidentiality because your safety would be more important or another person's safety would be more important. And then um, watch for this drift into disclosing too much because what can happen is if you're talking to other people who also have their person's best interest at heart and you're working together and you might like these people that you collaborate with, um, that you can just get comfortable in talking and you might uh, drift into talking about things that aren't really related to the information that's needed to be shared. Um, so see if you've got any questions about that, we can get back to that. Um, and so this is more just sort of the spirit of collaborating in a community um, that um, staying in touch with everybody um, who is on a person's team is important when there's a lot of complicated stuff going on and especially when you're really trying to get people connected. So if people is, you know, somebody's just getting into the shelter and they just got a new doctor and, you know, they are just working with, you know, just started working with, um, you know, getting food pantry supplies or something, let's say those three things and it's all new, then none of those agencies may be interacting with each other, but what they're doing may have an impact on, you know, what's going on. So if you think about yourself as kind of the hub of the wheel for a while um, and that you're kind of staying in touch with everybody and making sure that everything is sort of coordinated and working well and making sure that things aren't working at cross purposes um, in some way. Um, so um, yeah, so I think that's important, especially um, in the beginning because things can slip through the cracks, like one of the things that happens um, that I've made this mistake um, um, more times than I wish I had, even though I try not to, is if somebody is in the um, shelter and then it turns out that I forget to ask, are they following the rules and do they have um, any warnings or infractions? Because in our local shelter, if you get eight warnings on the ninth one, you're out. Um, and so if I forget to say to the shelter's, you know, director, hey, this person's in our program now and um, we want to support them doing well at the shelter. How are they doing? Do you have any concerns? And do they have warnings? Um, because if they do, then there might be a way that we can support them and, you know, um, preventing getting uh, discharged from the shelter. And so if you just don't do that, then, you know, then you might miss that. And then before you know it, you've got somebody calling saying, yeah, I'm, I can't go back, <laughs> I'm kicked out. Um, and so then, you know, um, being supportive of other people, you know, everybody who's doing this work is probably has a hard job or they've got productivity demands or they have things about their job that are kind of stressful or difficult. Um, and so keep, communicating, being supportive of other people, you know, just trying to be kind of friendly and supportive and, and nice. And, and I try to make things as easy as I can for 
other people and, and hopefully they'll try to do that for me as well. Um, and then managing transition well, so that if at all possible that you have some amount of overlap and then check back and say, hey, did this thing work? Did they go wrong? Is this, you know, are there any, did you hit any snags? You wanna just kind of really pay attention to all the details. And, um, and then I said, don't play the blame game because um, if you have people in your community that you find are less than, uh, you know, helpful or, you know, tend to be slow or unresponsive. It can be, you know, tempting to start to blame other agencies. And even if you're right about some of it, it's not that um, helpful. Um, and I have a, a, so I'm just going to share this one tiny story. Um, I was um, working um, with I'll, I'll just make up a name here, but I was working with um, a guy named Alan. I also, in our community, there is a guy who's a landlord named Alan, who was, um, had a reputation for being a really unpleasant, intrusive, you know, you know, sort of in the slumlord kind of category. And, and we didn't like working with him at all, but he happened to have a friend that took vouchers. And, um, but nobody liked him, you know, um, for, for obvious reason. He was hard to like. So anyway, I get a call from Alan and I think it's my client named Alan. So I pick up the phone and say, hey, Alan, it's so nice to hear from you. How are you doing? Which is a typical way that I answer the phone with my clients. And guess what? It turns out to be landlord Alan. <laughs> and, um, and he just like, there was this moment of silence and then he stumbled and then he was like, ah, I'm fine, how are you? And then I realized who it was and I thought to myself, that was probably one of the better mistakes that I ever made because rather than just answering in sort of this kind of official or, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, you know, kind of less than warm way, which I might have done, I ended up saying this thing that was just disarmingly positive and, and warm and it kind of changed how he was, um, how he related to me um, in this phone call. And he was calling to tell me about a problem and, um, but I had just been like super nice to him. So it kind of changed the nature of our conversation. And so this, so this slide is, Kind of an, I sort of feel like it's an example. Not all of you will be working with psychiatrists, but I'm bringing this um, up here is maybe a template for how you might work with a psychiatrist, but also it probably could work with you know other um, providers, you know doctors, other staff involved with people. So if you think about just the principles of it. Um, but we sometimes are working with you know we're working with people with serious mental health conditions. And often what we hope is they will get connected to a psychiatrist who will be able to provide medication because medication is the um, essential treatment for certain kinds of um, mental illnesses. Um, so here's all the things that can happen. You can share observations with a psychiatrist about how the person is functioning, about how they are managing their symptoms and how miserable or how 
much suffering they're experiencing. And you may be able to share that as an observation, um, which may be useful for a psychiatrist beyond just what a client would say. Um, sometimes you can enhance a relationship to a psychiatrist by um, helping a client think about you know, um, what the role of the psychiatrist is. And one of the things that I have to tell people a lot is, so a psychiatrist isn't a person who is a, to talk to a whole lot about your problems. They're more a medication prescriber because people often think a psychiatrist is like a therapist that they're gonna just be the person they can talk about all their problems to. And so if the psychiatrist is kind of more focused than that and, and kind of like just not really wanting to have a big conversation about that, they may feel sort of invalidated or unsupported, but it may be because they don't have a correct sort of expectation about their role. Um, so that can be helpful. Um, you can insist in monitoring how things are going. You can help solve problems that a psychiatrist wouldn't even know about, like do they need a schedule? Do they need a med box? Do they need a safe place to store their medications? Those kinds of things. What can they afford? Um, where, what pharmacy should they use? Um, you can review the information given by a psychiatrist if you did say like, hey, what's, you know, what did their little, you know, uh, handout say, or what did they say about this? Let's read it together. Um, you can help your client communicate to your psychiatrist or think about their problems ahead of time. Or if they're saying, I hate this stupid medication or, you know, my friend told me this is, you know, bad stuff and say, well, let's, why don't you ask them about that? Um, let's write down all your questions. And those are perfectly good questions to ask. And then you can, you know, support clients and uh, their wishes to decline medications, but kind of keep the conversation sort of open. So let's see, I think I'm going to stop sharing now, it's three o'clock. So um, yeah, I just want to open it up for comments or questions about any of that stuff, HIPAA or collaboration or, um, you know, anything, because this is obviously a big, big part of what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. <clears throat> so I was just thinking about the question that somebody asked yesterday, just a very real practical question about, you know, what to do when the goal of CTI is to do all this linking and, um, you know, referring and linking and monitoring and, and, and how do you do that when um, you're not allowed, you know, to bill at the same time as another program? And if you're referring to another program, they have to bill, you know, sort of creates a dilemma. Um, and I don't know that there's going to be, um, you know, a way to do that ideally. But what I was thinking is um, that I think what I would do in that situation, we did have that dilemma with um, ag teams, but that was like everybody else, we were able to, to do it. Um, but we could only do ag teams for like overlap for a month or something like that. But what we did is try to think about the service that we were connecting them to um, and see which ones were exclusionary because some won't be like probably outpatient treatment wouldn't be excluded, I wouldn't think, if it's traditional, you know, outpatient or uh, psychiatrists, doctors, you know, therapists, but sort of see, you know, what's exclusionary and what isn't. And then what I would probably do is figure out like what program can uh, best 
meet the needs of that individual at that time. And that if you think that CTI, you're using the CTI model would be a better fit for in terms of, you know, the rapid engagement and the community based and the um, sort of all the flexibility around the structure of that program and also all the skills that the team has. And if that seems like it's going to be um, do a better job at addressing a client's um, particular needs and problems, then it seems like it would be better to do CTI until you think you've, you know, kind of done the best work that you can do, and that it's a good time to transition over to other ongoing services, um, because um, you know it's very possible that CTI will be able to do things um, better, you know, than other services that have a lot more restrictions on it in terms of, you know, let's say if a client has to have a clinical assessment or a diagnostic assessment before they can even get the service, you know what I mean? Like, and if CTI uh, doesn't require that, then, you know, then that might be a better fit until you put all the other pieces in place so that when you do transition the person individual would be in a better, um, um, you know, kind of position to really be able to engage in those services. Um, so I don't know if that, um, that's not a perfect answer, but it's just maybe another way to, to think about it. Um, in North Carolina, we set up the service so that a diagnostic comprehensive clinical assessment was not required in order to get CTI, because it was recognized that for a lot of individuals, that's gonna be a barrier to treatment, not a segue into treatment um, or into services. Um, and so we made the case that, you know, we wanted it to be as low barrier as possible. Um, and so we had this case management assessment to understand needs. And then we had a few but we had to include some kind of a diagnosis in order to get authorized. So we would have sort of the, you know, our, um, the clinical, you know, team lead would sort of, um, you know, come up with their best guess at sort of a working diagnosis, knowing that they would get more, hopefully more fully evaluated um, eventually, um, but that we didn't want that to be the barrier to treatment. Um, so I have no idea how that will work in your area, but that was, um, you know, when we just wanted it to be as low barrier as possible. And, and, and that was one way to do it. Cause you know how people are, they don't want to tell the story one more time. You know, they don't have to jump through all these hoops just to see if you can help them with some life problems or housing. One of the things that I think, you know, I was just thinking about this is, you know, past week, um, is um, sometimes it's tricky to know um, how much you should do this or not do this. Um, and again, what I suggest is in the beginning, do more of it um, because then, you know, part of the in the beginning is really trying to get some things going and sticking. Um, and so usually that needs a little more attention in what we would call phase one in CTI during that first period of time when we're really working on a lot of connections. You know, if our clients are, you know, also determined by what they are open to and want. Well, I'm not seeing any questions or comments. Um, so maybe we can 
pause or maybe we can stop there and I'll just give maybe the sneak preview of what we'll do next week. Um, so next week uh, we'll work on for doing phase plans like and we'll probably use you know the case of Linda and maybe another case to develop an actual service plan. Um, so that'll be one thing that we do. Um, we'll also talk about team structures and we'll also talk about the various forms that CTI uses. Um, and you can see what you think looks useful and, and what doesn't. We used all of them. Um, and also we had other ways to track uh, data. So some programs are trying to track data so we could talk about what's useful to track and, and maybe how to do that. And then um, we will end on how to take care of ourselves and a little bit about self-care um, to kind of close the loop on, on everything. And so save, save any questions that you have. I may be forgetting something, but those are the, the basics of what we'll be covering next week. All right, well, thank you everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day.